Like I said, just I'm going to move around a lot, but um, I want to start with a couple of things. First of all, this idea of live like a missionary is something that we want to make sure that we connect to the idea of discipleship. Because living like a missionary, I think it's the, it's the easiest connection of the three topics we're talking about. You know, you know, when missionaries come and they give you their, their spiel and they, they set up and have this reception, they don't really talk a whole lot about their own spiritual health. They say, here's what we're doing, here's the fruit, right? And so discipleship is kind of the easiest thing to grab a hold of when you're talking about uh, living like a missionary. And so probably 90% of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight, you're all going to say, yep, I already do that. Or you look back and say, I already do a lot of these things. This is something that just comes natural to me. Or it's just kind of stating the obvious on a lot of this stuff. But um, it's everything. We do, this is not the, the, the only way to do discipleship. And I'm not up here trying to pretend that I'm an expert on discipleship either. Um, but I do want to say that as far as the passion for it, it's been relatively uh, new for me. So kind of the story behind that, about seven, eight, maybe even nine months ago, we were having one of our days away where um, David challenged us to pray for your ministry area. And so you just spend some time by yourself. It's like you're intentionally unproductive, and all you do is pray about your ministry area. And so I sat down. Um, Russell Marshall and I were kind of together. Uh, I sat down and I started writing down the ministry area, right? So I wrote down small groups, and then I wrote down missions, and then I wrote down men's ministry, and then I just put my pen down. I was like, I don't even know where to start on this. It seems like it's a lot of different stuff. It doesn't seem connected to me. It kind of seems like it's all over the place. So I said, I'm just going to pray in general and ask the Lord to tell me what to pray about. Um, and a cool thing happened. That something doesn't happen to me very often. The Lord gave me this picture as I was praying, and I saw a spider web. In the picture, and each one on the end of each of the webs was um, one of the ministry areas. And in the center, it's kind of like Charlotte's web in my mind, to be honest with you. In the, min- in the middle of the, of the spider web was the word discipleship. That small groups is an obvious place of discipleship, right? Mission trips. That's kind of like small, that's kind of like discipleship squeezed into one week and really, really intense. Like you get rid of all the boundaries, you get rid of all the things, and you, know, you get to see people in kind of more of a raw state. Men's ministry, doing the, the men's retreat and hanging out with God is another way of, of doing discipleship. And so started praying into that, okay, if my role is to lead people and disciple people, then what does that even look like? I mean, I feel like I did it for a long time when I was teaching school. I feel like it was something just hanging out with the kids. They kind of had to hang out with me. They couldn't leave. So you got to force, you, gotta, you have a captive audience all the time. But then I went to Cameroon in December. David Scott and I went on one of Michael Mosley's trips. We were going to speak at a conference, the most unqualified two people to go speak to the people that were there for sure. Uh, there was like, I, don't need, I didn't want to speak the whole time because they did everything that I wanted to do way better than me. Um, but I followed the lady that was here. She was here at church a few, uh, a few weeks ago. Florence Fokua is her name. And she was leading this conference kind of gathering of missionaries from all over, or pastors from all over Africa. And I noticed something. We got there and we went to her wedding. It was it, they, it was, she was already married, but this was kind of a celebration, they did an anniversary, and so they did, they rededicated her house, and it was a whole, like, three-hour service, and these ladies that were around her followed her the day before, all over the place, they were there at the wedding, doing all the things in the background, when we left the wedding, we went back to her house for a reception, and these ladies were there before us, the next day, we went out to the conference, 
These ladies were already out there with Florence. They were setting up the food. They stayed. The accommodations weren't the nicest in the world for us, and theirs were worse. Um, and they were cooking over an open flame for the entire week. And at one point, I woke up in the morning, like 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, and looked outside, and Florence and these five women are outside in a circle, and they're praying for all of us at the conference. They stayed there the entire week. I don't know if they ever slept. I don't know what they did, but they, they just went wherever Florence went. Wherever she was, they were. They were following instructions. She was, they were doing whatever she asked them to do. And so I just had to ask, them, what's, what's going on? Like, what, what is this? Because they like, they, when they were not at work, where they actually got paid for something, they were with Florence and her family. And she said, this is our discipleship model. Come live with me. Come be a part of me. Come follow me around for a year. And what they would do is she was, all these women a year before this were not believers. She went out and witnessed to them, invited them to, to watch how she does things. And then she was mentoring them into the next step of discipleship to turn them into disciple makers so that they could go out and find five women to disciple. And then the process would continue and multiplication would happen and all those things. And so after watching that, the first thing I said was that will never happen in the U.S. It's not going to, nobody's going to invite people into that level of intimacy in their home. And secondly, man, it really would be cool if we did do something like that. And so I asked Florence for some resources. Everything that we're going to talk about tonight comes from two guys that I read that Florence gave me. The first guy's name is Dan Spader. Some of y'all may have heard of him. His book is called Four Chair Discipleship. We're going to use his structure as we talk about discipleship, kind of what I just set out for you just a few minutes ago. And then the other guy is Stan, Stanley Gundry. Uh, some of y'all may have heard of him. Um, he's a theologian. He took the, gospel, the four Gospels and he broke them down and put the, and combined all of them into one book called The Harmony of the Gospels. And then he did the whole thing in chronological order. Uh, so you, he breaks it down into the first 18 months of Jesus' ministry and the second 18 months of Jesus' ministry and how he takes his disciples from a point of being lost to the point of being disciple-makers. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to start with the lost group. So if you're going to throw that up there for me, Kim. I think it's a... We're going to use John 1, uh, 37-39. When Jesus heard him say, when, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus, turning around, and Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? Very rarely do we follow that model when we're evangelizing. We go to people and say, Hey, I got something that, I, that you should want, right? And if we look at Jesus' model, he just looks at them and says, What do you want? Like, why are you coming to me? What do you want? And their question is, You know, Rabbi, where are you staying? And the, the next part, come and see. It's this invitation to, to observe, to watch, to look at, to kind of see what he's doing and how he's doing it. You can go ahead to the next one, Kim. Um, when we look at Luke 24, 13, 35, y'all know the story, you know the, the walk to Emmaus. It's the same thing. Jesus himself came and walked with them. You can look at that scripture on your own. But Jesus came and walked with them. And so when we look at evangelism as a whole to start the process of discipleship, bringing the gospel to lost people, it always starts with the question of what do you want and then come and look for yourself. 
Florence made a statement I thought was awesome when we were in Africa. She said, I don't have to convince anybody. I'm not out to convince anybody that Jesus is good. I invite them to come and find out that he's good. It's not about the argument that I give them that says this is the way to do it. He's the only one to follow. It's about the experience they have watching me follow Jesus. And I thought that was, that was the moment. We so often try to use a good argument to bring people to the Lord when really they, need, they just need to experience it. We're not necessary for that. He can reveal himself um, in, in how we do things and how we live. And so the first initial thing is the lost. And I feel like over the centuries and even today, the church is fairly good or has been fairly good at reaching the lost. I mean, they have evangelism programs. There's evangelism ideas. There's all kind of things written about evangelism, how to go out and how to bring people in. And I learned, you know, referencing all the people I've learned from, but I was listening to Les Beecham. Some of you all know Les speak a couple of years ago, and he, he was making up words, but they made sense to me. But he said, the problem with Western Christianity is we oftentimes, we invite them, in, we, we invite them into the savedom, right? We, the people step into being saved. Savedom's not a word, but it's a word he used. But we, we forget to lead them into being good citizens of the kingdom. And I thought that's, it's perfect. We get people Pretty quickly from being the lost, when we encounter, when they encounter Jesus, they move pretty quickly into being believers. And it's there where we, I think, in my opinion, the church really thrives when we talk about like witnessing to believers and like giving them tools. But we probably fall down on that next step. And so we'll look at the next slide. The believer starts, we use Philip for this one. Jesus goes to Philip. And finding Philip, he said, follow me. That's a higher level invitation than come and see, right? Follow me. And this, the word here actually means get in line behind me, right? It's not it's follow me, yes, but get in line behind me and do what I do. And so that's, the, that's what Jesus is inviting Philip to do. And Philip's first response is to go get Andrew and say, hey, come and see this. So you start seeing a discipleship process work its way out into come and see and then follow and then invite someone else to come and see. And so you see multiplication through discipleship through this. And so the thing that's really hard, and this is something y'all will have to help me with, is what Jesus does next is he invites them into every aspect of his life. The first thing Jesus does with these first few disciples is he invites them to a wedding. His family's there. He's combining those who he's leading with those he already knows and he loves, and he takes them to the wedding at Cana. Right? Very personal thing. Obviously, Mary, from the story, obviously Mary knows the couple getting married or she wouldn't tell the servants to do whatever he tells you to do, invite him into. So it's a very personal thing that he's bringing strangers into. That's not our culture, number one. That's, a, that's, that's something that, you know, especially if you're an introvert, you're like, nope, I'm out. Right? And so we have to step out outside of that. And it's a tough situation, but there are ways to invite people into certain areas. You know, it's a small groups commercial for sure, but that's a place, right? Instead of closing off a small group and saying, we're going we're gonna to do this together ourselves, maybe it's an action of opening up a small group and saying, hey, we want to invite you into this, even though it's awkward, even though it's, we don't know you very well, even though uh, we've, we've got these really close, tight-knit relationships that are thriving, and we're going to take a step backwards if we do that. Maybe invite people into those situations anyway. 
invite them over, mix friend groups. I was talking with somebody the other day. He said, I want to start a worship small group in my home, but I don't want to cross over my friend groups in this. So I'm going to do two, one with this group of friends and then one with this group of friends, because it might be awkward if we cross it over, which seemed a little bit crazy to me. But that was kind of the idea, because in our culture, it's hard to break down those walls of what's comfortable and, and then really, really what's discipling. And we'll get into more about discipling being uncomfortable. The next thing he does is he takes these disciples to Passover in Jerusalem. So he, he takes them to a wedding, and then he goes and celebrates Passover with them in Jerusalem. And this is the point where he starts flipping tables, right? So these guys know him maybe a couple of weeks. He's taken them to a wedding, and then he's gotten furious with them, right? He's cleared the temple. He's flipped the tables. And so these guys know he, you know, he's connected to his family and he's passionate. And so as we're discipling people, again, another characteristic, if we're passionate about it, we can't be afraid to show the passion. We can't be afraid that we're going to offend even with our passion for, for the Lord. It's, it's, it's something that comes with it. Some people are going to be turned off from it. I was talking with um, the Guatemala team. Was it the Guatemala team? Maybe the Guatemala team. They were talking about doing street evangelism, and it was easy because they would go to the door, and somebody said no. They just shut the door in their face, and it was easy to move on, right? But they said yes, you could have the conversation. And so it was, it was kind of easier than they thought it would be because you know, people that didn't want to talk shut the door in your face. And so you didn't have to come up with anything to convince them. The third thing that he does is he teaches. Now, we... I believe that the disciples were there when Jesus was teaching Nicodemus. How else would they record the story? And so I believe that they were in the room as he's teaching Nicodemus what it's like to be born again. And so three things that Jesus has done with them, taken them into his family, he has shown them his passion, and now he's showing them how to teach other people what, what the gospel. And so he brings them into that relationship. And then the last thing, Jesus spent time with them. If you look at Scripture, John 3.22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. That right there is one of the coolest moments for me. It's like you see Jesus, he's withdrawing, and he's saying, these are my gods. And Jesus is for everybody, obviously, but he's saying, these are my gods. He's withdrawing. I'm going to change the world through these five guys, and he takes the time to spend time with them individually. It said, I say five instead of twelve, because it seems through Scripture that Jesus pulled out five of these guys and really poured into on a deeper level than he did the other seven. And he, but he's spending time with them, and he baptized, but he's spending time with them. He's being intimate with them. He's letting them in on things that we don't have record of that conversation. That's where I would have loved to have been. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is awesome. But I wonder what he said to these guys who ended up changing the world when he was out there spending time with them. And then the last thing, he took them on a mission trip. He took them on, it took, you know, it wasn't good Jews didn't go through Samaria, right? They went around it. And he says, nope, y'all follow me. We're going right through the middle of this thing. We're going to go right to these people who are considered unrighteous and unclean by the Jews. And he's taking them to an unreached, if you want to use that term, an unreached people group here. So not only is he teaching, not only is he preaching, not only is he showing his passion and inviting them in, he's also doing work with them. He's inviting them into part of this. And I'm sure their level of, of input 
is not much. I mean, as you're watching the stories, they ask the questions throughout. Right? He meets the woman at the well. Like, what are you doing talking to her? Right? And he's, he starts teaching. He uses those teachable moments that they're not sure of. And so this is what it looks like with a believer. They're infants. Someone who comes to the Lord, we do a really good job of these five things. These are the five things they need to do. Right? They have to learn how to feed themselves. They have to learn. That's, that's reading scripture. That's studying. That's learning to pray. That's you know, worshiping and however it is that you worship. But they have to learn to feed themselves or they're going to quickly fall away. Or they become dependent upon the person leading them to spoon feed everything. And that's okay as long as we're progressing from the spoon fed version of this into solid food. As long as we're moving them along to the next phase. Secondly, walking. They have to walk. They have to understand the Holy Spirit power in their life. For me personally... That's the step that missed. And when I was becoming a believer, um, that's, the st- that's, the part, that's the part that I missed. We didn't, I didn't understand anything to do with Holy Spirit power. It was the Holy Spirit convicts, corrects, and resides, right? And then that's it. But when we step into it and we look at Scripture and we study this, that's not it, that's not it at all. The Holy Spirit living in it, nothing can be done apart from him. And so we have to introduce new believers to this because this gives power to feeding themselves. Scripture without the Holy Spirit is a book. But once we teach people to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, that book becomes the the piercing word of God, right? Lexus talk. They've got new believers have to share their testimonies. It's the only way they can they they become. Moving on, they, they get the skills to become a worker, which is our next step we'll go to in a minute. But the only way they can become a worker is if they're, if they're willing to tell their story, willing to tell how they came to faith, willing to tell where Jesus has worked in their life, and willing to just give, here it is, I'm an open book, let me tell you what God has done for me. Cleansed, again, that spirit-filled life, but this in a sense of the spirit filling us to turn away from maybe things that are keeping us from advancing. Sinful things that we're holding on to, that we can't seem to shake, whatever that happens to be. As we're, you know, as we're developing as believers, we still have, you have one foot in and one foot out, and that one sinful thing keeps tugging at us. We have to understand that to be cleansed, that, that we can't do it on our own. Whatever behavior modification model we want to try, that's going to fail. And that we have to rely on the Spirit to break those bonds for us. That's the key to to being cleansed. And then finally is identity. There are 33 specific things in Ephesians and Philippians that Paul says this is the mark of a believer. 30 of them have to do with identity. Understanding whose we are first as a believer. If we don't know who we are in Christ, then we cannot move to the next step of teaching somebody else who they are in Christ. The confidence of that, the acceptance of that, the acknowledging of who he is and who we are because of it gives us the authority to speak that into someone else's life. It's hard to have authority to point out, point out identity issues with people if we're not really sure who we are. And so this is just about confidence. And I would probably say almost all of you, probably all of you, have a grasp of all of everything we've talked about so far. 
right? I mean, ever, you've seen this in some form. This is coming from This is not some novel concept that somebody's come up with. It's just looking at Scripture and saying, this is what Jesus did, which I thought was funny. I had a conversation this week. I was talking to somebody. I was like, discipleship. Like, I had this whole thing planned out, and then I changed it today because of this conversation. Um, talking about, I said, I said, you know what? Discipleship is really ambiguous to me. You say the word, and everybody's like, yeah, they nod, they nod. But do we really, it's like, I don't really know what discipleship means. Like, it's not Sunday school. That's education. It's not, you know, studying more. That's education. But what is true discipleship? And he said, well, it's following Jesus. It's like, yeah, of course it's following Jesus. But give me, give me some kind of tool. He goes, just in his ex- quote, he said, follow Jesus, stupid. I was like, oh. That's how I, if you say that, I'll hear you. Um, for sure. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to understand. But it, was, it made such perfect sense to me that sometimes we create, we make this much more difficult than what it really has to be. We're looking for the next good book or the next good thing, or I am anyway. And we make this so much more difficult than it is living a life of pursuing Jesus all the time and living like a missionary and boldly doing all these things. But if we stay at this point... We're only going to stay as children, as babies, not even children. This is like, this is entry level, low commitment. This is, I've been in church for a couple of years and this is where I'm at. The hard part comes when we progress to the next thing. So when we become the worker, this was the hardest one to look at and, and, and think about. So the worker, the role of the worker is to teach believers to reproduce their lives and others. All of us are doing this, right? I don't know that all of us, when I say us, I'm talking about people of our faith all over the world. They're doing this, but I'm not sure they're always, they're, I'm not sure they're always reproducing Jesus, right? I'm not sure they're always reproducing his life for other people. A lot of times I think about we're re, we may be reproducing our sins in other people, especially when you look at families. I was thinking about you know, generational sin when I was looking at this and looking at my kids, and they tend to burst out in anger over things a lot of times. And then I think about times that I've burst out in anger at them, and it's no wonder this is why they respond when something doesn't quite happen the way they want it to happen. And so I'm reproducing something in their lives, but it's not reproducing something good in their lives. It's reproducing something sinful in my own life that I need to ask the Lord to break off. But being a worker is a struggle. If you throw up Hebrews 12 for me, please, 4 through 11. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father if you are not disciplined? If you are not disciplined <clears throat> and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. Not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father's spirits and life? And live. 
They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Becoming a worker, I can guarantee you, is going to cause pain. Those of you who have served in the mission field before, y'all understand this more than the rest of us who have not done that, right? You're going to lose relationships at some point. People who you thought were for you have turned out to not necessarily necessarily be for you. People who have come alongside to do ministry with you have then stepped away from ministry, and that's hurt you. You've even been, you know, at some point you may have lost close family relationships because of your faith. And so being a worker is a struggle. If we go and work for the faith, if we go and work for the Lord, and and everything is easy, Scripture says then we're not legitimate, right? Then maybe we're not actually doing it. Because God disciplines. He takes away even things that are good in our lives in order to make things better. Things that we see as good, as righteous, he may remove that for, to make things even more holy. Does that make sense? And that's the part that's really difficult for me, is that I'm already, we're already making a commitment. If you go into your workplace and say, I'm going to stand for the Lord in this place, and you get demoted because you are proselytizing at work, or you're sharing your faith, or you're doing a Bible study and your boss doesn't like that, he says, no, you can't do that anymore, or I'm going to move you to this place and I'm going to do this to you, then we're probably doing what the Lord wants us to do. There's struggle, there's discipline, and there's probably better fruit or more fruit as a result of it. And so I'm not, back up, let me back up for a second. So I'm not saying go stand on your desk at work tomorrow and start preaching. That's not what I'm saying. This is just a metaphor, and all metaphors break down at some point. But that's the idea. Like, as we pursue others, as we're workers and we're doing ministry, wherever it happens to be, as we're living like missionaries, you're going to endure struggles. It's going to be hard. And if your foundation as a believer isn't strong, you're going to quit. See, that believer phase is way easier than the worker phase. The believer phase is... I'm going to go to church. I'm going to, I'll be there every Sunday. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to give. I'm going to do all those things. That's the believer face. It's easy to show up on sun, each Sunday and do those things. The worker face is a lifestyle of living like a missionary. It's not easy. It's not hard. And if foundationally we're not at a place where we can endure the struggles, then we'll very easily slide back into that believer phase and say, well, this is, this is where God has called me because it's easier and it's more comfortable. The other thing is Philippians 3.10 is this participant in suffering. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of the resurrection and participation in his suffering. That's something I've never said. That's not something, like, when I think about my faith, like, oh, let me go get crucified. Let me go get beaten up. Let me go get killed for my faith. Let me go and do these different things. I, you know, I have no desire to be a martyr. But it's pretty clear that we're to participate in his suffering. And whatever that looks like for us at whatever place that we are, it's going to be a lot different here 
then it's going to look in a, in a closed country somewhere. It's going to look a lot suffering. Think about Christians dying around the world for their faith. And we say, well, you know, I didn't get the promotion because I'm a Christian. It doesn't really, you know, the scales don't really match in that. But we're not to create suffering either. It's to pursue the Lord. And as a result of that, anything negative that occurs to us in response to us pursuing Jesus, call it suffering. It's kind of a place I've come to because two weeks ago I would have said, no, that's ridiculous. But you can't manufacture suffering. You can't just figure out, oh, i gotta, I got to suffer. And so just go and beat yourself with rods all the time. That's not suffering. That's not sharing in his suffering. I don't see that modeled for us by Jesus. And the last one is open to discipline. John 15, that's the pruning of the hedges passage, pruning of the, of the tree passage there. In order for good fruit, we had to step into a place where we're allowing the Lord to remove things that even sometimes that are even good things in our lives. We have to allow him to go in and take things out and take things away from us so that we have good fruit. So the the lost person has no fruit, right? The believer, the believer has fruit. The worker has more fruit. And to, to have more fruit, there has to be a pruning process. There has to be things that we remove, that we eliminate, that we take away, so that God can, God can multiply the fruit in our life. So the worker is the hardest section. Most Christians dabble here from what I from what I've looked at, from what I understand. When you look at the burnout rate of of people in ministry, whatever ministry that happens to be, whether it's a missionary or whether it's, you know, ministry in the in the ministries, whatever it happens to be, most times we get here and then we pull back because we get burned out, we get wore out, and we can't endure. Because we don't have those disciple-making Christians in our lives who are encouraging us. I would be interested, it'd be interesting to know how many people who are out there actively doing ministry believe they're doing it alone. Doing it by themselves. And people may step in and out of their lives to help for a little while. But I wonder how many people feel like they're on an island when they're out there doing ministry. And if that's the case, that's where burnout happens. I think of the, you know, the, the APES things we talk about. That's where you need the prophet in your life that's willing to encourage you and to speak life into you and to constantly pray for you and pursue you. And that's the place where that, that's where that gift really thrives, is in a place of encouraging those who are out working. It's this concept that, that people don't understand a lot of times. It's like we think of prophet and our minds immediately go to the Old Testament version of gloom and doom and woe to, the, woe to Babylon. And that's not the New Testament version of that. The New Testament version of that is encouraging people who are working in the field. Jesus looks at his guys and says, he tells them in Samaria, look, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He says that then, I would say that it's probably, even, it's probably still true now. The last one, the disciple maker. This is the, this is the fun one, because what this means is that we've endured being the worker, right? We've moved into a place where working has become, it, it, we're filled constantly. We have those people encouraging us, and we've moved to a different father's glory 
that you, can't even see that far, you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The lost, no fruit. The believer, fruit. The worker, more fruit. The disciple maker, much fruit. Right? This is where God has pruned. He's taken those things away. And we've seen this explosion of fruit that happens in people's lives where people are multiplying disciples. They were actively pursuing other people. The central characteristic of a disciple maker, again, is the Holy Spirit living in them and leading them. If you look at the anchors here, the two anchors of Stonebridge that, that focus on this aspect of being a disciple maker is being conformed in the image of Jesus and being led by the Spirit. The more that we're, we're, we're conformed into him and the more we're led by the Spirit, the more times we can look at people and say, hey, come and see and follow me. That's the key. It's, it, and it seems like this, again, not a novel concept. It's just doing what the scriptures say to do and trying to put them in a context where, we're, where we can do it. And so what we see in disciple, in disciple makers' lives is we see the power of the Spirit, Right? It's, it's tangible. You know it. You can say, you point to that person and say, something different there. Something new. Something, something crazy. There's something to that person that says, this is what, you know, there's, there's the power of the Spirit in everybody they interact with. And they, they, they go to people. You're like, I would never do something like that. Like, start a missional community. Right? Why in the world would you ever want to invite people into your life to that level of accountability and, and, and that level of intimacy and all of those things unless you have the power of the Spirit because it's not natural. It's not something that's in reality, but we also put up walls and fences around things. And what this does is the power of Spirit breaks all those things off. We also see prayerful dependence. People who are disciple makers are dependent on prayer it's a primary function of their day it's a primary function of their life it's not something that they have to carve out time for right the disciple maker is not the person who is saying well i got to figure out a place where i can get in the word or i got to figure out a place where i can worship the lord or i have to figure out a place where i can pray they live a lifestyle of prayer worship and study it's something that comes natural to them. It's kind of their daily thing. It starts looking a lot like Paul in Scripture where it's constant. I pray unceasing, right? I pray continually. Worship. They're people of worship. And I'm not talking about singing songs like Bo said last week. Worship, everybody has that unique worship style at home. And it may be songs or it may be... It may be prayer, it may be, be an attitude of thankfulness, whatever that happens to be, it doesn't matter that there's a lifestyle of worship that exists in our lives. And then again, lastly, the Bible. Not that it's not last for, but you have to know the word. We have the word, has to, and you'll, the disciple maker, it's not that they have to know the word, it's that they have a craving and desire to know the word. Because God has created that, that in them. There's nothing... Really, to sum this up, a lot of description, but to sum this up is that this person knows they can't do anything apart from Jesus. Simple as that, the disciple maker understands I can do nothing apart from Jesus. And the, and the, the attitude changes, right? 
John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants. I no longer call you workers. Because a servant or worker does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I've learned from my father I have made known to you. So the disciple maker enters that relationship not as the worker or the servant, but as the friend of Jesus. He knows the things of the father. He knows the things of that where God is working. He or she knows the places where God is moving and what God is doing. And I think that is the key. It's to get to that point. There are very few. Because, like I said before, it's so difficult to endure that disciplining stage that we feel like a lot of times those places, I know I've been there multiple times where I was like, all right, I'm not hearing the Lord. Where's God in this? What's going on? What am I doing wrong? You know, what have I, how do I pursue harder? What's, what's happening in my life that I don't feel the Lord's presence as tangible as I have in other places? And that's that pruning aspect that's going on where God is creating this heart that wants to know that you can't do anything without it. And it's just that revelation of that. So it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of words. There's a lot of things up there. But it's, for me, it's the scriptural basis of how to live like a missionary and disciple people. Invite them in. Come and see. Right? What do you want? Come and see. Follow me. You're working in the fields and you're making disciples. And so this whole concept, this whole idea that I learned from Florence, again, a lot of the things we talked about came from Dan Spader's book. But... What I learned is, is that it's, it, this is how you multiply disciples. When you look at how Jesus poured into those five, right, and then you look at the book of Acts and all those guys scatter, and then with a few years you hear about thousands and five thousands and more thousands and on and on, that Jesus prepared these guys to be disciple makers, and then they went out and changed the entire world that way. It's amazing. Within a generation, right, maybe two generations, the known world, the Roman Empire is Christian because of these 11, 12, eventually 20 guys that were involved in ministry understood they couldn't do anything apart from Jesus and they had to share it the way he shared it. And it revolutionized the world. It changed everything. It's brought the kingdom to earth. And I think that is what we're called to do as disciples. As we're discipling people, do what Jesus did. I won't call you stupid like the guy called me. Do what Jesus did. Don't overcomplicate it. And find those few people who can speak into your life that when the tough time comes, that they can speak encouragement into you. They can urge, they can spur you on, right, to not give up. Move outside of the comfort, your comfort zone. Move outside of the comfort zone even here. Right? We talked about it a, mil- a million times here. If you're not... For me, one of the things that's hard for me is having other people pray for me. So I, that step is to move out and let somebody else pray for me. Engaging in worship. Sometimes it's hard for people in the corporate setting to engage in worship. Well, take the next step outside of that so that somebody else who's here can see, right, as they follow you, as they get in line behind you, that you can point directly towards Jesus, that you can disappear to the point that Jesus has seen in your life. And I think that's what discipleship is is that if we get to the point where we disappear to the point that jesus has seen so those are the points i have um those are the things i have for you 
I've got some discussion questions for you at the table. And they're going to be up on the screen in just a minute. If you go ahead and go there, Kim. And just discuss these things and get as vulnerable and as deep as you want to get with this. And just share, share your hearts for these questions. What aspects of discipleship do you find most intimidating? I would say probably for me, a lot of times it's, it's, it's that allowing people in. It's opening up. I have, have space for a lot of people, but when talking to each capacity, everybody else is out. Um, and so just discuss these questions for a few minutes. And we got about 15 or 20 minutes uh, left tonight. And just ask the Lord to reveal some of these things and some of these things for you. So I want to pray for us before we discuss this, and then you'll be uh, allowed, just free to talk at your tables. God, we thank you for, uh, for giving us the example that you've laid the groundwork for, for what it means to disciple. We thank you for Jesus' life that serves as a blueprint. Lord, is that if we just, if we just follow your model, then effective discipling happens. And so, God, we just pray and ask for you to break down those things that we find intimidating, that you remove them, that you would give us confidence that you're in them, that you would give us confidence to pursue through them, that you would give us confidence to know that you are leading us in that direction. And, God, we just pray for those in the room who are, who are workers right now, Lord, we just encourage them to endure, pursue, and we just pray for people. We pray for those prophets to come alongside and speak life into them and to speak encouragement into them. And finally, Lord, we pray for a disciple-making community here at Stonebridge. That if we want to see our community completely transformed, if we want to see people live like missionaries here, Lord, that if we have just a few, you change the world with eleven. We just want to change the city right now. We'll start there. So, Lord, we just pray that you would give us our five. Give us our five people that we can point, we can tell them to come and follow us as we follow you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.